0: IVP produced this podcast as a public service. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or another qualified health provider for any questions you may have related to mental health conditions. Tell me about a time when you had trouble getting out of bed. It could be for any reason. I would say that there was a
1: period of uh, several weeks where it wasn't so much the front end of the day on getting out of bed was difficult, but it was the back. It was the end of the day in which I had this felt sense that if, if I don't wake up tomorrow morning, there would be a relief. years ago i had an event in which i had perceived and the perception that the word perceived is important because so much of what creates distress in our lives has everything to do with the story that we perceive is true about our lives um it is deceptive deceptive yeah
0: Thompson is a psychiatrist, speaker, and author based in Virginia. He hosts the Being Known podcast and has written several books, including Anatomy of the Soul and The Soul of Shame. This interview in particular was convicting and eye-opening. Kurt's explanation of the distinction between guilt and shame and the ways in which these things can get conflated in our minds was... Personally, revealing in some uncomfortable but I think really helpful ways that I'm still processing. You're definitely going to hear me working through his ideas in real time as i try to figure out what i'm experiencing and what that has to do with with the concept of shame and why shame might be a main reason that people stay stuck in bed It's interesting that you talk about perception. It's one of the things that my, my therapist has actually been working with me on is um, perception. And I mentioned to her some reoccurring nightmares that I have about some things. And then I, we, we went back to, to my current anxiety, the thing that had been bothering me currently. And she said, Alan, that's a dream too. That's also That also exists in your imagination. It's also your perception. And your way of viewing things that's getting you stuck and stuck in your head. That's a hard thing to learn. What's so difficult about perception is it's in your head. Right. You have to do a lot of work to get distance from your own perception because it's it's you. It's your perception. You know, other people's perception, you can look at it and you can say, oh, clearly that is blue. I don't know how you or clearly they did not mean to offend you. That is not what happened. But when it's you, when it's in your head, you're. You're stuck.
1: Right. Well, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, the philosophers and the physicists love to have, I mean, this is their playground, right? So I, yeah. I will point this out to my, my patients and I will, I will put my mug on the stand that is beside my chair and I will say, what do you see? And they'll say, well, I see a mug. And I'll say like, well, you know, how do you know, right? Because what we know is happening right. is that their brain is having to reconstruct all that. Inside their head. Yeah. We're not going to say, oh, no, the, the cup isn't real. It's just something, it's only something that you're making up in your head.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. But in order for them to perceive that the cup is there on my stand, their brain has to reconstruct what they sense. First we yeah. sense, and then we perceive what we sense. Now, I said, the difference between what you are perceiving and someone who is having a hallucination who sees a cup on my desk that is not there yeah. has everything to do with our encounter of what we perceive in the material world. The reason mm. that I believe it's really a cup and I don't have to wonder whether or not, is because like I have lots and lots and lots of practice of seeing a cup on the counter, walking over, picking mm. it up. And I have lots of practice that reinforces that my embodied encounter in the world is consistent with the things that my mind is making up yeah and what happens when it comes to our inner lives and our self-perception, yeah, is that I don't have an external thing out there, an external thing about Kurt, that I can go handle and touch and so forth. So when we read in, in the first chapter of John that we you know, the, uh, the word dwelt among us and we perceived him, right? we, we laid hands on him. Mm -hmm. The reason that they can write about the word is because they have first had him in the material world. Hmm. And so when it comes to my perception about myself, which includes what I sense and image and feel and think about my internal state of affairs, if I don't have a community with whom I am in constant, regular, cadenced communication in which I am Hmm. revealing who I am, who can ask me questions about things that I don't know that I don't know about, that means that there will be lots of things about me that don't have the opportunity to make their way into the material world.
0: Interesting.
1: As experienced and seen and articulated by those in my community, such that I can then grapple with it, so I can put my hands on it. And I think that what happened to me six, six or seven years ago, was that there were elements of my story that I was not taking into consideration hmm. such that the item that was front and center for me that was evocative of so much of my torment mm-hmm. uh, became the only thing I could see right the only thing that I would think about and it yes. was you know and it's and it's trapped in this echo chamber in my head banging around yeah. over and over and over again. And it was only through the practice, like, I've got this group of, of men that I meet with every Tuesday morning for a long time for confession and prayer. And, like, and I'm naming these things for these guys over and over and over. And my spiritual director, we're naming these things. Yeah. And it's in those moments in which they validate my grief, mm-hmm. but also then invite me to extend my peripheral vision and say, well, mm-hmm. gosh, as you're talking about this, Kurt, here's something that I notice about your story that you're not talking much about. Hmm. And here's something else about your story that you're not talking much about, not just about your story as it presents right here now, but your ancient story, the story of the first two decades of your life and how there's so much about your unfinished business with both your father and your mother that are in hmm. the room. You think it's just about this one isolated piece of territory in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And as it turns out, that piece of territory, it becomes far easier to focus all of your attention on that and what you're having to give up and lose with that. And that, as it turns out, though, is actually a proxy for all this other stuff that you've also lost, but that you haven't grieved.
0: Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. So we have to, when we get stuck in our heads, we have to find ways to ground ourselves. And what you're saying is, Community is a way of an embodied vulnerable community is a way of grounding
1: ourselves. I'm saying it is the way. It the, is the, the way. There are wow. there isn't any other way. Like this is the second page of the Bible. Yeah. It's not good for the man to be alone. And when the man yeah. is alone, like bad things happen.
0: That seems so challenging for our time when people are so alienated and alone. And it just it just reminds me, you know, there's right now we're going through this mental health crisis. I certainly see it in college students, but I know it's not just college students. Um, And it just strikes me. It it just it makes me very worried that we don't have these embodied communities. A lot of people don't have these embodied communities in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so then it'd be so
1: easy to get lost
0: in your head. Mm hmm.
1: Well, as I've, as I've said in, in other, other spaces, um, you know, the pandemic primarily did not cause things as much as it revealed things. Yeah. Now, there's certainly things that it caused in terms of our embodied experience of the world, right? People died. Our bodies right. didn't do well. But in many respects, what the pandemic did was that it very quickly disabused us of our uh, distractible coping strategies, uh, I just it just kind of like took them away, yeah, and we are left we were left with the us who were there before the pandemic. It's not like it created a new phenomenon. I mean I, we we had developed you know strategies over the last ten to fifteen years, or you know, especially since smartphones, of finding an infinite number of ways of uh distracting myself from myself. Yep, yep. Um, and so we're like, oh, this like, oh my gosh, we don't have community. We, this is the pandemic. we like, no, we didn't before the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> right. We just had lots more access to things. And now like, it's like the king has no clothes. Yeah. And so now we are, uh, you know, we are kind of offered the opportunity to do the hard work of building community one and two relationships at a time. Which, you know, before the invention of the wheel, that's kind of how we had to do it. We didn't have the, like, we as we like to say, uh, all technology uh, does at least one thing every time and provides the opportunity for a second thing. The first thing is that it makes life more convenient. That's what all mm. technology does. And the second right. thing that it potentially does is that it potentially sets us up to be less connected to one another. Mm. I can now plow my garden more efficiently with the, with the wheel, and I can also move five miles away from you so that I can't, I don't have to talk to you. Yeah, and I can get there a lot faster.
0: That's right. So one of the one of the questions that I often get is, what do you tell that person who doesn't have that community? Because I, I've received pushback, I've gotten this because I make this argument in the book that they're going to be you. You have to rely on people because in my own story, there have been times when I have just had to call up a friend and say, I can't move. What do I do? And they've come over to my house and just sat with me and prayed with me and talked with me and gotten me out of my head, just like you described, because I was lost and going over and over and over and over and over. But one of the questions that I'll get, some of the pushback I'll get is, well, well that's great if you've got that community, but what am I supposed to do? I'm alone. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, so I have two responses to this. Uh, well, maybe three. And the first actually begins on the—okay, the the book is Genesis, the Story We Haven't Heard. And the author is Paul Borgman. Borgman, former—I don't know if he's still—I don't know how—like, this was 20-plus years ago. Uh, He wrote this book because Borgman was a professor of literature uh, at Gordon College. And he taught the book of Genesis as a literature course. And it was so well-received that it was eventually put into a book form. Wow. And in this book, he writes—I've never heard anybody put it like this. It's just like, oh my gosh, this just makes so much sense. He says, who knows how many people God tried to get to go with him to Canaan before he finally, in Abraham, found someone who said yes. Huh. We don't know because there's no story to be told. Right. And then you get, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that just seems like, and then you get to the New Testament, you get to the Gospels, and you're like, oh my gosh, there are a lot of people that Jesus asked to be his disciples who said, no, I got to go bury my dad. I got to go check out this piece of land. Yeah. Jesus knows, God knows what it's like to want deeply, desperately to partner with humans, and Mm. we say no to him. He knows what it's like to be turned down. Mm,
0: That's beautiful. He,
1: he wants to tell us his story and he wants us to tell his story to others and he wants to partner with us and we say no. Yeah. And so to the, so that's the first thing I would say that for those of us who feel overwhelmed because we perceive, there's that word again, We perceive there is no one who will say yes to our request to partner with us. I want to say, Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be you. Hmm. In fact, he might say, if he were talking to you, he's like, gosh, now you know about what it's like for me to be me. Yeah. And then he would say, uh, I want you to do what God had to do in in Mesopotamia. Hmm. I want you to do what I had to do 2,000 years ago in Palestine. I want you to keep asking until the first person says yes. Yeah. Will this be hard? You better believe it's going to be hard. Because yeah. human beings are terrified of actually living into their calling off the first page of Genesis.
0: Hmm. We're
1: terrified of this. And so when we say, like, you have community, well, my guess is, Alan, that you didn't just, like, magically wake up one day and community was just there. No, no. No. At some point, you yourself had to do the work of forming community. You had to take the vulnerable step of telling your story for the first time to somebody that you didn't know with certainty that they would receive it. Like, so we do this work of we we develop what we call confessional communities. And we're doing this work trying to we're, we're training people to develop these, you know, lay Lay versions of this with you know without having two therapists in the room. And when I go places to speak, this is a common question, Kurt, where do I find a confessional community? And I'm I say, like, okay, Paul Borgman, it's hard, yeah. God knows it. And the question is not where do I find it, the question is how do I create it? Because that's what we have to do. Yeah. And it is hard, it is risky, and God knows what it's like, and it is the way that we heal. And so it means. You start with one person and you ask them, uh, Sam, will you join me in talking? I want you to read Alan Noble's book. And when you do, I, then I want you to consider, can we tell each other our stories? And can we begin to do this? And if you're willing to do this, then I, like, I got one more dude. Yeah. Or Sarah, I got, I got one more. I got, one, I, I got another woman in my mind that I would love to join our community And maybe, maybe Sam, you pick one and I pick one and they're all, we'll go from two to four. We're going to like, we're going to do this. And can we know, can we be, can we be certain that like, we won't be disappointed, that we won't be hurt? Like, no, because you're dealing with human beings. Yeah. But, you know, it's like that passage in the silver chair where uh, the the young girl is having this encounter with Aslan in the woods. And there's the stream, right? And he has this encounter and she's desperately thirsty and she can't pass the line to get to the stream. And she says, well, then I guess I'll go have to go find another stream. And he says, there is no other stream, right? Mm-hmm. There is no other way. Yeah. And, uh, but, but I mean, part of the challenge I think is that we have been trained over 500 years of enlightenment and modernity combination. We have been trained to believe that we, uh, can and should be able to live on our own as individuals. Right. And uh, so uh, people will ask you, what can you give them that they can do on their own so that they don't have to risk doing it with other human beings? (laughs) Right. And
0: then they'll be alone Exactly. at some point. They'll be alone. They'll shut off the light to go to bed, and then they'll be alone with themselves, and they'll realize, I have not touched another human being emotionally or physically all day. I've been utterly alone. And so there's a a radical intentionality that is involved in modernity to create these intentional confessional communities. Um, Maybe an intentionality that just wasn't required 500 years ago, but it's what we have to do. And Mm -hmm. I've been talking to my students, my students, you know, they're in this position where friendships come easy because they're in this community. It's a Christian college. So a lot of the people they are around believe the same things. They're going through the same life things. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've started to tell them, get ready because it is never going to be like this again. Do not treat your friendships as a given. You're going to need to be just as intentional, just as intentional as you are right now about finding a spouse. You're going to have to be about finding friends and keeping friends because people are going to move. They're going to betray you. They're going to not want to be vulnerable. And you're going to have to, as you were saying, just keep looking for those people. mm -hmm. And uh, we're not, there's not, we're not trained to do that. As you say, the whole of society is pushing us to be isolated and alone, constantly projecting ourselves. we throwing ourselves out into public and sometimes being vulnerable, but only in a way to create a brand, not in a way to actually live with one another, which is what we need in order to get through because life is filled with suffering. And at one point or another, you're going to have to rely on somebody else. And, and uh, the flip side is even if you feel very confident, other people need you, like people need to be able to rely on you. And uh, if you aren't creating those, uh, you know, intentionally creating those communities, it's not going to be there. Yeah.
1: I, I would I, I would highlight uh, that there is a – that you, you may be familiar with this, but may, our listeners may or may not be familiar with. It's a particular model uh, of uh, doing psychotherapy and understand it's, it's a psychotherapeutic model of the mind called internal family systems. Mm. And if you – I don't know mm-hmm. how familiar you are with it. Richard Schwartz developed this back in the 90s. And uh, you know, without uh, and I I would I would say one really lovely resource for this is the work of uh, my friends Alison Cook and Kimberly Miller, uh, the book they wrote "Boundaries for Your Soul." And in this model, Schwartz talks about this notion that we have many selves. There's my funny self, my confident self, my shy self. My you know, there is the professor Alan Noble. There is the husband Alan Noble. There are these different parts. And Schwartz wouldn't have said this, but we would point this out and say, we get this in the 42nd Psalm, where when David, I said to my soul, why art thou downcast? So there is the part of David that is asking the question and the part of David to whom the question is being put, right? There's a part of me that is downcast. And one of the things that we are, uh, this is a very, very helpful model because it helps us help patients recognize that when we say like, oh, I'm shy, it's actually not completely accurate to say that you homogeneously and globally are shy. There is a part of you that is shy, but like once you find yourself in a relationship that you're comfortable with, like you're not shy at all. Yeah. Right? So you're not only shy. You're not only a professor. You're not only a husband. You're. I mean, you are. I'm not only insecure. I have these parts of me. Yeah. And so what's important to recognize is that. Every human being has parts of us that are isolated. Uh, we have all kinds of coping strategies that help us not pay attention to them because they're distressing. Mm-hmm. The problem, of course, is that I have to burn energy to keep those parts contained out of my awareness because they are mm-hmm. unpleasant. Yeah. That's what my brain's doing all the time: I'm keeping unpleasant affect, emotional state, out of my awareness. But that requires energy. And the more energy I have to burn doing that, that is energy that I do not have available to create beauty and goodness in the world, those artifacts of beauty that have been waiting for me to partner with God before the foundation of the world. Hmm. Depression then becomes an expression of the brain and the mind and the body when we are no, when we no longer have access to the energy that we need to live in the world. Because that energy is being siphoned off to protect ourselves against all the parts of us that are too unbearable for us because we've been trying to walk around with them by ourselves. Hmm. And so one of the things that we can say, like, this is to your comment about there are those of us who might feel more confident and comfortable and, and we're not feeling like we're isolated. I will tell you, you have parts of you that are. yeah. The question is, how can we use the parts of us that are comfortable and confident how can those parts actually help pave the way and open the door for the parts of us that are not comfortable and confident to come into the room in order for them to bear their face in vulnerability yeah. to uh, to other human beings who will welcome that? I Like, I can't welcome that. Like, I won't welcome it. Like, I want to keep it buried. But yeah. if I'm in the room with you and you say, Kurt, I really want to know more about that part of you that is really afraid— of being embarrassed when it comes to certain parts of your marriage that you're not mm-hmm. doing very well, mm-hmm. I want that part of you in the room. Mm. Because I see that you're burning energy keeping him out. Mm. Because you're afraid that once I see him, like I'm not going to want to have anything more to do with you, which is absolutely mm. the case. Mm. It's it's the third page of the Bible all over again, right? It's like oh. You know, notice right in in that in that like the the text, the, the Hebrew text, it's, it's so it's fascinating to me, right? The text is not an active; it doesn't read. And they opened their eyes and saw that they were naked, and their eyes were opened. It's a passive tense. Mm. Their eyes were opened. Somebody else, something else, is open. So, and like I'm pointing out to her, I'm pointing out to him. Oh, you're naked. Could you could you please put that away? Could you please yeah. like? Like, I'm, in other words, the, the wounding just continues from the mm. conversation between the woman and the snake, where it's now we're just going to share it with everybody. And in that wounding, my vulnerability is, like, it's, oh, that I am naked is now a liability. Yeah. I'm shamed because of my vulnerability. And so, like, I'm not stupid. Why would I be vulnerable about those parts? Like, why would I, like, bring that stuff into the open where <laughs> right. I know when you see it, you're going to, like, want it, like, ugh. But we have to do it anyway. We do. And and we would say uh we in Jesus we have someone I mean this is going to sound uh whatever Uh, You know, I I was in Nazareth a a few years ago and saw this and and, and had kind of like an up close and personal visit with somebody who was curating a museum and talking about crucifixion. And, you know, all of my uh, motifs of crucifixion is Jesus, you know, from movies or pictures or whatever. It's, you know, Jesus on a cross, but that the cross is highly, it's pretty elevated. And the the curator of the museum was saying like, oh, no, people were no more than like eight inches off the ground. But yeah, really they're just okay yeah they're just they're just like and he said the, the, because the point is is that the Romans want you to see everything see. right and, and they're not going to be like yes up on the hill apart from people that I might see in the movie like no it's like right there on the side of the road. yeah we want to humiliate and terrify. Mm -hmm. This is fear and shame. This is what that torture mechanism was all about. And we Mm -hmm. have in Jesus someone who was stripped naked, beaten to a pulp, and hung naked, naked, with all of his package. In all of our Christian artwork, rarely will you see an absolutely accurate version of the crucifixion and all for good reason. I appreciate that. But the point is that the Romans did, the Romans intentionally would do this. And and Jesus we in Jesus we have someone who knows how hard it is to do this work of being naked. Hmm. But in so doing, like you know the Romans had lots of ways of killing people. A whole range of different ways right. that didn't require stripping somebody naked. But in some respects like this is a recapitulation of Genesis 2. The end and they were naked and unashamed. And Jesus was mm. naked and he was disregarding the shame. Evil wow. thinks that he's come and he, he's gonna use shame in the same way that he used it in the garden. And Jesus is saying, like, you can take me as you want. You don't get to like you don't get the last sentence in the book.
0: Wow. Let me let me pivot a little bit and ask about shame and mental illness or mental affliction. How, how do you see the role of shame playing into somebody's life who is struggling with a mental disorder or a mental illness? How might that appear?
1: Well, I think first of all, I would say, um, and, and we, could, we could talk a long time about the use of language like mental illness. But the first thing I would say is that uh, shame is ubiquitous to the human condition. It is first and foremost a neurophysiologic event that we begin to experience as early as 15 to 18 months of age. Wow. Long before we have language. Uh, And so we are practicing before we have any comprehension of what we're doing or what we're experiencing. We are already practicing ways of mitigating it. Practicing ways of regulating it, and if we, you know, in in most families, we grow up in certain ways in which, when we feel shame, we don't necessarily have the understanding or the experience that when when I am shamed because of something, I don't have a parent that says, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry." Like the reason you're feeling shame is because of what I just did. It's not because of something that's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. I often don't like I don't get that message, and so what do I got? I got like, well, I got to draw. Well, it's 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 about me. It's up to me. Like I'm the responsible party for what I'm feeling. I don't think these things as a six-year-old or as a ten-year-old, sure. But it is how I operate, and so by the time I'm 18, I have an entire library of narration that helps me regulate shame, and I don't even know that's what I'm doing. So this is like th- this is taking place, you know, in in the lives of eight billion people. This isn't just oh, some <laughs> people have it, some people don't. Like, right, right. Like, so, but what we would say. Is that, uh, for, for example, you know, we would say that um, w- when we are experiencing emotional distress, uh, we can experience distress for a number of different reasons. But it is not uncommon for that distress and the in the neural networks that represent the particular distress that I have, whether it's sadness or anger or disappointment or whatever, they get tangled up with the neural, the neurophysiology of shame. Hmm. So, if I grew up in a house where, oh, so, for instance, like, I grew up in a house where I, I, had, I had two parents. They were both God-fearers, Jesus-lovers, lovely people, and they were imperfect. Yeah. And uh, my mom was pretty anxious, and my dad was a guy who, uh, if you were to talk with him for 30 minutes, you would come away and think like, oh, my gosh, Lewis Thompson is a gem. He's a lovely guy. Hmm. You would not think, oh, my gosh, I think I'm a little worried that that guy could, like, have an anger problem. You wouldn't hmm. think that. You wouldn't know what he would think. And why was that? Well, because we spent a lot of time making sure we didn't piss him off. Hmm. Now, it's not because, I mean, he he didn't rage and he didn't didn't do any of those things, but like there was a sense in which you didn't mess with my dad, but my dad wasn't necessarily aware of the impact that he would have, which meant that I grew up in a family where I was afraid of the affect of anger. I was afraid Hmm. of it. And I also learned that you know, being the good little Jesus follower that I was, to be angry was something that was wrong with you. Hmm. So shame and anger get tangled up together for me. To be angry is to be ashamed. What about the kid who, you know, he's he, he brings he's he's ten years old. He's got his best score on a math test ever. He brings his ninety two percent to his dad, and his dad says, "Ah, oh, where's the other eight percent?" So. You know, if you ask dad, like, are you trying, are you trying to make your son feel bad? <laughs> is this, was that, was it when you woke up this morning, intention? did you think, yeah, did i think like, oh gosh, I wonder how can I make Tony feel really bad today? Oh, yeah. I'll wait till he brings me his math test. No, he's not trying to do that, but he's mindless about what he is doing. But what Tony learns is that joy, here's my 92%, and shame get tangled up together. And what does Tony then do? Tony learns uh, you don't ever tell people about what you really love about yourself. You don't really ever tell people what you want. You don't tell people what really, you know, really excites you because there's too much opportunity for those folks to come back and say, like, like, why are you asked? Why are you like, what, what's up with you? Like, where's the other 8%? Some version of this. All this is to say is that we have an infinite way of tangling ourselves up with shame such that at some point, my brain runs out of capacity to continue to contain the noxious affect that it carries. Yeah. Because I am primarily carrying it in isolation. Hmm. And when that happens, shame, the moment isolation begins to, I mean, the moment, I mean, isolation is a primary feature of shame. And so, to the degree that I feel isolated, you can guarantee that shame is at work. Is that so? When we we ask, well, so what role does it play in mental illness? Like, it's like it's playing a role with everybody. Yeah. And in those of us who have gotten to a point where we are expressing it in terms of symptoms, we can say well it won't take much it won't take long before we find out where and how shame is has become operational in this person's life
0: wow is this true with other emotions so so i i don't feel like shame is a big problem for me, but guilt is, and to me those those concepts can kind of overlap it at, yeah. at times. Uh, so does guilt operate in the same way? so if, for example, um, not to be too vulnerable on a podcast, but you know it's not uncommon for me to wake up and just feel terribly guilty with no no object of, of guilt and so often what my mind will do is say uh, that one part of me right will say mm-hmm. to the other mm-hmm. part of me, um, mm-hmm. what do we have? What do we got? What do we got to to work with here as as possible sources of this guilt? Do we have any good uh any good suspects? And it'll fi- mm-hmm. it'll always find something, right? right? And part of that and I think you know is is growing up in church culture there's always
1: there's always something you can feel guilty about. Um Yeah. Well, this is a question that is not uh, infrequently asked, what is, what's the difference between shame and guilt and how, does, how do they, you know, yeah. what's the dance that they have with each other? And I would say, well, there are some ways, uh, this is this is not a, you know, a comprehensive or absolute an- reflection on that, but there are some things I think that can be helpful. One is that, uh, as we've said, the thing that we call shame, right, we give that, we give a, a word that we call shame to the neurophysiologic sense of what we of what we experience. And there are characteristics of this that you can see in three-year-olds. Hmm. There are characteristics of this that you can see in dogs, Hmm. right? There is the turning away. There is the disintegration. There is a me moving away from myself and me moving away from you. Yeah. When you get to the characteristic of the thing that we call guilt, when you get to that Interpersonal and neurophysiologic response, cognitive response that we call guilt. We would say that the the things the, the highlights and the features of that phenomenon don't begin to emerge in children until they're somewhere between the ages of about three to five years of age. And what are the crucial differences? One would be uh, the development of the prefrontal cortex. Okay. And the development of the prefrontal cortex means I am now able to be aware that. I'm not the only person in the universe. There is me and there is you. And not only that, I can also begin to separate me from an action that I take. So I have the sense that I did something. Guilt often, the thing that we're calling guilt, involves an action that I have taken. We might say I'm guilty of doing something wrong, committing a sin, whatever. I'm guilty of an act that is not okay. But my perception, it's not that I'm guilty of doing something that is just simply not okay in the abstract. It's not okay because it involves a a, a breakdown between me and somebody else. Yeah. Like, I'm guilty of something I didn't, and my, my dad is angry. Like, I'm, like, because I'm aware that I didn't just do something wrong, I did something wrong, and my dad is upset with me. Yeah. But my awareness of that requires my brain having developed enough of an awareness that there is a me and that there is my dad And there is this thing that I've done. So we would say, the shorthand for this would be to say, uh, guilt is I have done something bad. Shame is I am bad. Hmm. Because developmentally, with shame, I don't, I yet haven't developed the sense that there is me, there is you, and there's the thing that I've done. Hmm. Now, here's the thing. This is another crucial piece that's different between the two of them. Uh, and, and these these uh, studies have been replicated in children, in uh, like young adult, like college students, older adults. If I commit an act uh, that affects a person with whom I have an important relational connection. hmm. The feeling of guilt, the thing that we call guilt, my typical response most times, not always, but most times, my typical response is to move toward that person and seek forgiveness and say, I'm sorry, because I want to be more connected to them. Right. Because I'm able to separate this thing that I've done. It's not me that is totally the problem. It's this thing that I've done that's separate from me. And I have the confidence that when I've hurt your feelings, Alan, because of what I've done, you will say, it's okay. We're good. Hmm. <sighs> I feel good about that. Six hours later, I'm reflecting on what I did. And there's the part of me that still feels bad. Mm-hmm. I, re- I remember the event. I still yep. feel bad. Yeah, And I will say, I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to call Alan again. I'm saying, dude, I'm just so sorry. I'm just, and you said like, dude, like we're, we're fine. Like we yeah. we had that we had that conversation at nine o'clock this morning. Yeah. And and I'll say, like, I still feel guilty. And you would say, No, that's not guilt, that's shame. Hmm. Shame is this thing that has me feeling separate. Hmm. Uh, it is a common thing for people to say, I feel guilty, I feel guilty, when what they are really feeling is shame. I'm not your therapist and I don't know your story that well, but like I would guess, I I would invite you to consider that there's a good possibility that what you're waking up with in the morning is not guilt. Hmm. It's not the thing that we would call, we we would use that word to describe. We're using, we're talking about a phenomenon that, you know, the minute that you, again, because guilt is like, when I'm guilty, it's like, yep, I'm guilty because I did this thing and it affected this person and I know what I need to do to go and make this right and I can do that and it's gonna make right. it right. Right. Shame has me kind of like cowering and like concretized. Like I'm, I'm just I'm just all, I'm straight jacketed alone in my isolation. Because with shame, I will tell you that when I feel ashamed, if I've done something for which I feel shame, I will not come to find you because the very notion Of you, of me imagining you seeing me see you, right? Is too, it's too nauseating. It's too, it's too painful for me because this is what, this is the feeling of shame that I get. This is why in the gospels, so often when the gospel, uh, when the literature talks about the use of the word sin, so often shame is talked about, guilt is talked about. Less often and more in terms of courtroom, right? This is about right. God, the judge, giving us innocence, right, setting us free. But shame, and and this is why, like, I need a savior to come and find me because, like, I'm not going to be able to look at him on my own terms. Mm-hmm. And what's and, and one of the reasons why we why we think it is really important that we like be clear and recognize like we're not talking about a thing called guilt. We're talking about a thing called shame is so that we can then identify, well, what are the features that are actually taking place so that we can then identify what do we need to do specifically about this particular neurophysiologic event? And this is when we would say, uh, you know, the first thing that we need is our willingness. And, th- and this is hard. This is hard for us. I need to be willing, you know, I did this thing, you've forgiven me, guilt is not a part, like, and you're saying, like, Kurt, let's let's get coffee again. I'm like, no, I can't. You're like, no, dude, like, we're going to have coffee. And, uh, we, okay, so, yeah, and then you're like, and you're going to be like, Kurt, look at me. And it's going to be hard for me to look at you. Hmm. Like, look at me. And I am going to have to take the risk of allowing myself to be seen by you. Hmm in the very moment that shame is in the room in order for me to have a physically and embodied experience of watching it be disregarded in your eyes. Only now can I really see me truly because I see you seeing me. Hmm. Because that part of me that shame is in charge of, it doesn't want to see anybody seeing it. It's too overwhelmed with how awful it is. It just wants to go away.
0: Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's, that's a lot. And so for somebody who wakes up feeling shame, part of the reason they want to stay in bed is because that is an effort of isolation. It's a way of pushing away.
1: Right. The, the sooner I get out of bed the sooner I'm likely to encounter someone who will see my shame and it will be too unbearable to me. This is a story that I'm telling. Yeah. And it's not until I begin to practice, right? I mean, oh my gosh. Like Caravaggio's painting of Thomas coming to Jesus and Jesus grabbing his, oh my gosh, it just gets me. Him grabbing his wrist and putting his hand in his wound. Yeah. Look at me looking at you. Looking at me, looking at you. I mean, this is he is like like Thomas just gets a bad rap about being doubting, <laughs> right? I mean, this is a dude yeah. like like think about it like like it's not just that Thomas needed to know that Jesus was alive. Thomas first needed to know that Jesus was dead. Like mm. he's not there. He doesn't witness. Like he's like they've all got like is he really dead? Like you hear things like it's not until he sees the wounds. Yeah. Does first death make sense before life can make sense? And if I'm going to live, I have to allow you to see my wounds. I have to allow you into the parts of my house where death lurks. Hmm. And Jesus is saying, this is how we do this. Hmm. On purpose, with intention. Hmm.
0: So what do you say to somebody who's struggling to get out of bed? If you could give an answer, why, why get out of bed? Or more bluntly, why, why live? I know that's a heavy question.
1: Well, let me just say this, that uh, to our audience who's listening to that question, uh, who fits the description of the one you're describing, uh, I would say, that, first of all, that it wouldn't surprise me if they would I I can offer a response and it will be they will be hard pressed to receive it Hmm. because the part of them that is that is in charge of the not getting out of bed. The part of them is the part that is so afraid of intimacy Hmm. that even an invitation to intimacy uh, only wants them to double down on their intention to not let themselves go there. So I'm going to come up with all kinds of reasons. Like, yeah, whatever Kurt said, like, yeah, but that, but here's the other reasons why, like, what he, it doesn't really work in my situation. And here's this excuse, and here's this excuse, and here's this excuse, (laughs) and so forth and so on, to which I would say, I get it. And I would say I would invite that person to consider that is a part of you that is in the room. Hmm. And that part of you is so overwhelmed and so deeply feeling the pain that it has kind of like expanded its presence. It's like it has taken over the play. That is on the stage. Yeah. And I also would want to say, though, to that person, there are other characters in your play. There are other parts of you that the world desperately needs. Hmm. There are parts of you that if they were given the opportunity to come onto the stage, if we were to take the talking stick... Away from the part that is now dominating the stage. And we were to say, Thank you for your service. We want you to go stage left. <laughs> and we we're going to bring some other parts. I want to say there are other parts that long to create beauty and goodness in the world, beauty and goodness that the world desperately needs, for which the world will not be complete unless your part comes to the party. Wow.
0: Thank you for that. I think one of the things that Kurt teaches us in this episode is that even when there's a part of us that is afraid of intimacy, that is scared, is uncomfortable, that has been hurt before... There are other parts of us in our mind, and there is a part of us that longs for intimacy, that longs for vulnerability. And it's that part of us that we need to talk to and to nurture and encourage so that we can live in what he calls confessional communities. So I loved it when he talked about the idea that there are different parts of us in the room and inviting those different parts to come out. And the fact that the world needs those parts of us that we might want to stay hidden. For me, I was thinking about how when I go through very difficult times, uh, the creative part of me shuts down. I sort of lock that part of me in a room and it just goes and withers. Even the funny part of me tends to get shut down and instead it's just the, what do I need to do to get through the day? You know, the controller part of me that takes over. So it was convicting when he said, you know, the world needs those other parts of you. And I'm like, oh man, people will tell me that my writing encourages them. And yet my creative side is one of the first things that gets shut down when I'm going through a hard time. What can I do to allow that person to be in the room and to continue to function even when I am suffering? Because, you know, inviting that creative part of myself into the room isn't going to make the mental anxiety go away. But I wonder if there's a way for those things to exist in the room at the same time. I don't have an answer for that. IVP is invested in advocating for mental health. Through the publication of books like On Getting Out of Bed by me, Alan Noble, and The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson, IVP provides Christian resources for both individuals and professionals. Find all of IVP's mental health resources at ivpress.com mentalhealth.